0: This morning's passage from Romans eleven thirteen through 28. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion." And he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to have your words in our possession, that we can see what your Holy Spirit has written on these pages through Paul so many years ago. And Father, we pray that he would give us direction, he would give us understanding in our minds as we look to these passages, as we try to figure out who are the true Jews, where is Israel in all these pages and in the future. And Lord, I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of you, and be glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, the greatest security we have as Christians, I believe, are the promises that God gives us, and the promises that he gives us in his word. And as you read the Old Testament, you will note that there are a lot of promises in the Old Testament But it seems as though most of those promises in the Old Testament were directed to the Jews, or a large number of those. And there are a lot of promises in the New Testament, and we see that those promises are directed to the church. And so there we have two different types, seemingly, of promises throughout the entirety of the Bible. But as we look in the Old Testament and we see those promises, we know that a lot of them haven't come to pass yet. We know that a lot of them are not fulfilled yet and so the question then becomes is when are they going to be fulfilled? Are they going to be fulfilled? And to whom are they going to be fulfilled? There's a multitude of questions about those and as Christians we wonder when we we trust God to fulfill those but If he doesn't or if something's passed and he no longer fulfills them with the people that he promised he fulfilled them with, how can we know that as the church, he's going to keep his end of the bargain and fulfill all those promises of the New Testament? How can we be ensured that God's not going to change his mind and create a new group of people And say, oh, yeah, they were promised to the church, but we're going to shift things a little bit. And they're going to be fulfilled in somebody else. How do we know that? How do we know what the answer is? People have attempted to answer these questions ever since the word of God was written. And they've attempted to answer them in a variety of different ways. And as you've heard me say throughout the past months, is there are a great number of people that will tell you that all those promises in the Old Testament, even though it appears that they were made to a group of people, a nation, Israel, as it were, they will be fulfilled in the church. That it's not a literal group of people that God was promising to, but a spiritual group of people that God was promising to. And thus, The true Israelites or the true Jews are spiritual and make up the church as we know it today. And that is a very good argument. And there is a lot of truth to that argument because we've seen Paul play a lot of that out throughout Romans as we've gone through that. But as I said, it's not something that we just sort of cast away and say, well, they're crazy. They don't know what they're talking about because they have a very good foundation for believing what they believe. Especially when we look at the current Jewish state, right? You look at Israel now, and they are anti-Christ. Everything about them is the opposite of Jesus Christ. They don't believe that he was the Son of God. They don't believe that he was the Savior. They're in full-on rebellion to Jesus. So we know that God doesn't bless unbelief. God doesn't bless those who reject his son. So the question is, how does this come about? Or is it going to come about? Or when is it going to come about? And that's precisely the issue that Paul was looking at in chapter 11 and that we've been dealing with for the, for the past few months. We've seen how much Paul loved his fellow Jews. His countrymen, his Israelites, so to speak, and how much he would give for them to be saved. Remember, he said that he wished himself accursed and cut off from Christ if they would come in, if they could believe. And he wrote about how God uses and will use the Gentiles to bring in the Jews. How did he say that would happen? Through what? I read it just a few moments ago. Jealousy. That it is through jealousy that we would ordinarily think to be a bad thing, right? But it is through jealousy that God will make the Jews come to himself. And that jealousy is they're going to look to us as an example and be jealous or envious of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. And essentially, jealousy is a beautiful thing whenever it comes to salvation. Because it is pretty much the way that evangelism works right now. Think about it. When you see chaos happening all around, and yet in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of unimaginable grief, You see someone with unbelievable calm. With peace that really doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And you wonder, why? How is it they have that peace? How is it they have that calm in the middle of such chaos? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Then that makes everyone else want what they got and that brings people to Christ that brings people to God no one likes wringing their hands and saying I hope no one likes likes wringing their hands and saying woe is me however oftentimes you see people do it so often you tend to think that they enjoy that part of their life but whenever you boil it all down nobody likes that chaos it's not fun it's not a place we like to find ourselves in everyone wants peace everyone wants tranquility especially in times when it doesn't exist and whenever we view Jesus and see Jesus as the only source of that in this world it tends to make others jealous for what we have and it is that jealousy that God uses to draw others to him that that joy at a time when no one else can find any joy whatsoever. When everyone else is sorrowful. And that is, invi- that is vitally important as we exercise our faith. But it's vitally important that we don't take our light and put it under that bushel. Because if we, put it, if we take our light and we put it under that basket and we hide our light, no one sees that peace in our life in chaotic times. Right, They don't see us being different in those difficult moments than unbelievers. So there is no jealousy in their minds. If God to a Christian is the same as no God to an unbeliever, what's the benefit? If a Christian isn't joyful in difficult times in the same way an unbeliever isn't joyful in difficult times, there is no benefit. There's nothing to be jealous over or about for an unbeliever that would draw him to or her to Christ. And so the onus is on us as believers to exhibit Christ in a, in a beautiful, magnificent way so that they would want what we have. That's how evangelism should work. Whenever we exhibit what Christ really looks, at, looks like, it is contagious and creates jealousy within unbelievers. Shoving Christ down an unbeliever's throat ain't going to work. It's going to get thrown back up. It's not going to happen. But whenever they see you exhibit Jesus Christ in your life, whenever you find comfort in the most sorrowful of moments, whenever the most chaotic situation, you can speak peace and comfort into those, and your life reflects that, that's something that everybody wants. That is a very attractive trait that only Jesus can give us in our lives. So last week we looked at the next step Paul's speaking of the future of Israel. And he's talking about if the first fruits of the lump of dough is holy, then the entire lump of dough is holy. And I made an analogy on a tomato, right? You remember that, those of you that cultivate tomatoes? And Brandon, I was told that you gave your first tomato to Brooklyn. Little did I know you didn't even like tomatoes. So that really doesn't count. But yes, and we said it, we talked about it this morning in Sunday school. Those of you that garden, you don't want to give away that first tomato. Now, the next group that comes, you may give bushels and baskets of your crop to your neighbors and your friends and others, but that first one's yours. But yet that was what was required of the Jews in the Old Testament was to give that first one to God to demonstrate your love and dedication to him. But Paul says, if that first fruit of the dough is holy, so is the whole lump. And he said, if the root... Is holy, so are the branches. And we talked about what the the first fruit and what the roots were. They were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All those original prophets and wonderful godly men. David, and and we see that rich history come down from from Adam and Eve, basically. But if those first fruits were holy, so is the whole lump. Now, does it mean that their faith saves everybody else? No, not at all. And we discussed that at at great length last week. So we are continuing in this theme of what's going to happen to Israel as a nation. What's going to happen to the Jews as we go forward? Will they be saved or is God finished with them? Is there hope for all Israel? And that's an important phrase to keep in mind as we go forward this morning. So let's look at this morning's passage. Romans 11, and I'm going to focus on 25 through 28. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Paul is explaining this to the Romans who were by and large Gentiles. He's explaining it to us who are by and large gentiles you know i'm sure a certain amount of curiosity comes to these romans mind and our mind as well as we look at at our bible and so much from cover to cover of our bible is filled with jews it's filled with judaism and their teachings and their history and everything about that There's, there aren't any to speak of gentiles in this we're not looking to our prior countrymen or or our kinsmen for anything that's in this bible and so there's a lot of confusion about how all this works and no doubt new believers had that confusion as well we just kind of accept it because we've been indoctrinated in it for so long and have some understanding of how it works and so Paul's wanting him to understand he's trying to tell them how the progression of Gentile and Jew and and Jew and Gentile and how that's all going to play out going forward. And he tells them what God is going to do with the nation of Israel or what it looks to me to be the nation of Israel. He writes that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, We've been discussing the hardening for several chapters and who that dealt with. But here it says a partial hardening has come upon Israel. So the question I ask you is, who's he talking about here when he says Israel? And that's something that we're going to have to dig into and look at in order to understand verse 26 going forward. It becomes crucial as we look at 26 to understand who he's talking to or about in verse 25. So there's a partial hardening that has occurred. Who are the recipients of the partial hardening? Is it the church? No. Clearly that's not the case. Is it a combined group of the Jews and Gentiles? I don't think that is it. Is either. Either. We've heard him speak about a remnant of the Jews. There's a partial hardening, the remnant. No, that would make no sense whatsoever. I think the answer is pretty obvious, right? Who's the answer? The Jews. Those that are Jewish by DNA. They've been hardened, and he talked about it. That's why the gospel has been given to us, is because of the Jews' hardening. It's pretty obvious from the context of this passage that that's who he's talking about. The nation of Israel has been partially hardened. Partially, he says. Why is it partially? Why is it only a partial hardening that has occurred to the nation? Because there is a remnant. And we've discussed that remnant, and Paul talked about that remnant. Paul is one of that remnant, right? He's a Jew through and through, and he talks about his lineage and how much he is so proud of his lineage. But he's part of that remnant of ethnic Jews that believed. So it's not a full hardening, but a partial hardening. And it continues to be partial in its hardening. There are a great number of Jesus-believing Jews in the world today. I mean, You can search them, Google them. They have their own group. And still to this day, it is a partial hardening and not a full hardening. I think the folks are called Jews for Jesus. And it's a rather large movement. But by and large, Israel is anti-Jesus. Is anti-Christ, so to speak. So how long will this partial hardening last? Not a difficult question. I've given you the answer. Paul gives us the answer. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we have a partial hardening, but it seems to be limited in time, right? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come Has come. When is that? What does that even look like? How does that even happen? Those are all difficult questions that we must ask ourselves as we go forward. Don't ask me when this occurs because I have no clue. Nobody does as much as they like to predict it, as much as they want to tell you, as much as they want to dig through the numerology and everything else that's in the Bible and tell you they've got it figured out. In my lifetime, I can tell you of a dozen people that have predicted the return of Christ. How many have been right? That'd be the donut hole. None. None of them have been correct. You know, as I looked at this and tried to understand the fullness of the Gentiles in preparing this this morning, there was a scripture that came to my mind, uh, perhaps quicker than any of them, and this demonstrates the sovereignty of God and salvation. It really does. And the scripture that came to my mind also demonstrated the sovereignty of God and salvation. It's Acts thirteen forty four, and we'll jump over there. Actually, Acts thirteen forty eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So here you have the beginning of the gospel being shared with the Gentiles. Prior to this, it was shared only with the Jews. And so Paul got tired of the rejection of the Jews. So finally he said, I'm done. I'm going to the Gentiles. So he started going to the Gentiles. But you see that the last part of this passage, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That was a definite number. And everyone that was there, everyone that had been appointed to eternal life believed. There was an end to that group. There was a first and there was a last. And when Paul got finished with the last, he moved on. But we see a definite number in this passage, and it relates to me, in my mind, it relates back so well to Romans eleven twenty five. 25. It's not as if God just sits around and wrings his hands, wooing people into himself, wondering who's going to come and when they're going to come, or if they're going to come, for that matter. God's a much better planner than that he is in far greater control than that otherwise the fullness of the gentiles may never come there may never be a moment when that happens if he's just up there waiting on well we'll just see when they come and if they come and how many come and there's a 50 50 shot that they believe or they may not believe then there'll never be a fullness because he will forever be waiting but God is sovereign in all things, and he is sovereign in salvation. And I think this passage in Romans points it out very well. And so as we jump back to Romans eleven twenty-five, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So this partial hardening until, until as many as are appointed to eternal life believes. That's the answer. So as many as are appointed to eternal life when that last one believes, the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. And it is at that time and only at that time that the scales of blindness fall from the Jews. Their eyes falls away from their eyes and they are open. And so we look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved it's an extremely critical phrase and it's critical because of what what we're looking at the question is who does Paul mean by all Israel and it's been debated for hundreds of years and there are multiple attempted answers but I will give you what I think is the one correct one there are those that believe all Israel is still speaking of spiritual Israel, that it's only referring to the church and the remnant of the Jews that make up the church. That's all of Israel. So their logic goes, well, you've got the church, you've got the believing Gentiles in the church, and you've got the remnant of the Israelites or the remnant of the Jews, and they are believing Jews, and when you put that two together, those are the all Israel that we're dealing with here in verse 26. And as I said, it is a good argument, but I don't think that it's the correct argument. And they would tell you that all the promises of the Old Testament are found and will be fulfilled only in the church. But let's look at the context here, and let's try to figure out what Paul means by all Israel. In verse 25, we look at the same word, Israel toward that last line and the proper way of dealing with this is to try to find as other similar or same words that are close in proximity to the word that we're trying to figure out what is and how it's used there can we understand it there I and mean, you just keep branching out but here we have one in the pre- previous verse and he's using israel in the previous verse to mean is it the spiritual jews or the literal jews it's the literal jews It's the ethnic Jews that he's talking about here. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's not the church. It's not the remnant. It's not a combination of the church and the remnant. It's the unbelieving ethnic Jews, the nation of Israel. They are the ones that have come upon this partial hardening. So what has happened between that use of the term Israel and this one to make us think Paul changed what he means? Nothing. Now clearly Paul has redefined for us what it means to be a Jew, right? He did that all the way back in the second chapter. The second chapter of Romans he said, A true Jew is not one outwardly but one inwardly, meaning a true Jew is a Jew by faith, not because you have Jewish DNA pumping through your veins so he redefined for us what a true jew was and so there are many that have taken that definition and want to apply it here to say that's the true israel the spiritual israel but it doesn't work here first because he's using the term israel in the same way in verse 26 that he used in verse 25 and the reasoning it would be terrible writing for him to use it to mean one thing in verse 25 and then turn around and flip it to mean something else in verse 26. And Paul didn't write that way. He usually had a cogent line of thinking and reasoning, and his writing was in the same manner. So we know in verse 25 he's speaking of the nation of Israel, and so it seems as though verse 26 he would be saying the same thing. There's no evidence to support that he has changed his meaning of Israel from verse 25 to verse 26. All right, let's continue. The second part of verse 26. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So the deliverer will come from Zion. Who is that? It's Jesus. And he will banish ungodliness. So ungodliness, sinfulness will be banished. Does it sound like the church? I know. The church is full of sin and getting worse, okay? But honestly, does it sound like the church? The church has been cleansed from ungodliness already through Christ, right? Why is he going to have to do it again? It really makes no sense in my mind that he would then come back and re-cleanse the church that he already cleansed on the cross. He shouldn't have to do that. He did it once and for all, and those of you that have been to Sunday school know that his sacrifice was once and for all. So it doesn't seem to me to make sense that he would have to come back and and re-cleanse the church or banish the church's ungodliness because he has already done that. So it doesn't look like that we're speaking about the church here. He's saying he's going to do it from Jacob. That's a clue from Jacob. So who is Jacob here? Jacob's not the church. Jacob's never been referred to the church, nor a combination of the remnant and Gentiles. Jacob has always been referenced to whom? The Jews the Jews, the ethnic Jews, Israel as a nation. So Jacob is referenced in my mind to the Jews, Israel. So once the church's world mission, world missions, is finished and the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then Christ returns and takes away the hardening of ethnic Israel. That is the plan. That is God's plan. He opens their eyes. He banishes unbelief from them. And in my mind, it is a mass type conversion. What it looks like, no clue. How it goes down? no idea but we see here i believe that it definitely happens and in this way and this will be my covenant with them when i take away their sins let's continue as regard to the gospel or as regards to the gospel we're starting or in 28 they are enemies for your sake Who's the they? Who are the enemies? It is the nation. It is the unbelieving Jews. They are enemies for whose sake? For our sake, for the church's sake. So again, he's continuing on. And so to say that all of Israel means the church or that group of people that believe in faith would say that prior to verse 26, he uses it in one way, he jumps in verse 26, And then he jumps back and starts using it in a different way in 27. It just logically does not work. But as regards of election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So the enemies are the Jews. And whose enemies are they? They are God's enemies. They are God's enemies. Yet for election, for God's purpose... For God's choosing, they are beloved, because there is more to come, is what Paul is saying here. That they're enemies for now, but there's going to come a time when they're not. There's going to be a day whenever they come back, whenever they are beloved. And he says, for the sake of the forefathers, he's going up to that analogy of the first fruit and the lump and the root and the branches. jump back up to verse 12 now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the gentiles clearly it's all about the nation it's all about the jews here how much more will their what inclusion partial inclusion full inclusion full all clearly Paul is alluding to a mass inclusion of a group of people, and that group of people, as we've seen over and over and over, evidenced in this passage, is the nation of Israel. How much more will their full inclusion be? It doesn't look like that he's being theoretical, or he's writing what-ifs. He asks the question because that's actually what's going to happen in the future. The full inclusion is the full inclusion of the nation of Israel and ethnic Jews moving forward. Verse 15. For if their rejection, there being the Jews, means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be mean but life from the dead? So, He's clearly anticipating that as a nation they have rejected Christ and we all were reconciled because of it and they're going to be included, they're going to accept and whenever they are accepted then there's going to be a resurrection to life, eternal life, forever and ever. And so when Jesus returns from this passage, I'm not going to get too far far from this passage because I don't want to dig into that any more than what we are this morning. But when Christ returns, we're going to be done spreading the gospel message. We have spread it to every last person that God has called and that person has accepted. Then Christ's going to return. There's going to be a magnificent inclusion of the Jews. And the Jews will believe by faith in Christ Jesus. And there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. A whole lot's going to happen when that occurs. How it all works, don't ask me. Because I'll tell you the same thing if you do. I don't know. Let's look at some of the Old Testament passages speaking of this. And I will pour out on the house of David, the Jews, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace, and we see grace, and please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they pierced, it's not pre-cross, the, when they see him who pierced is in the future, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over their firstborn. So it is at this moment they see, at this moment the scales in their eyes have been lifted, and they see Christ for who he truly is and who he was. And that's part of their weeping, their mourning over what they've done in the past and how they have missed him and how they have rejected him in the past. Isaiah 66, 8. Who has heard such a thing? Is that up yet? Yeah. Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Sounds to me like a very instantaneous thing. A mass outpouring of faith in the Messiah at some point and time in the future. Jesus will return and take away the ungodliness from Jacob. He will take away their sins. But he will do so in the same way that he takes away our sins. By faith. And until that time, what are we to do? We are to continue the mission that God gave us, and that is missions. That's our job. That's our duty, to share the gospel message with everyone that we can because that's how the fullness of the gentiles happens god uses us as his hands as his tongue to share the gospel message with those who don't know him and so often and so many times we have this idea that somebody else will take care of it well we are the somebody else we are the messengers We want to go on and and live our lives and leave that up to somebody who's called to do that. That's us. God has called us to do that. That's our job. We have to make sure that the fullness of the Gentiles gets carried out by doing God's work, and he works in and through us to do it. He created the church for such a time as this. He gave the Jews that job back in the day and they kept Christ and they kept God to themselves. And they became self-righteous in the overall process and then he took it from them and he gave it to us to be faithful stewards of. So that is our job. That is our duty. That is the very reason for our existence is to share Christ. Share him with unbelieving Gentiles, unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Americans, unbelieving Mexicans, unbelieving Canadians, you name it, everybody. That's what God has called us to do, share Jesus. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for the insight that you've given us into the future hope for Israel. We know that so much of your economy has been built around a people we thank you for the grace to include us in that tree to graft us in to that root father god may we never be anti-semitic in our thoughts in our actions or in our hearts may we always embrace the notion that you're not finished with the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. But help us to continue to share your gospel with everyone, regardless of who they are, what their skin color may be, what even their beliefs may be at the time we do the sharing. Give us the courage to do that, and may we carry out your work with our tongues and with our hands, and may you be glorified through it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All rise. May the grace and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all. Have a wonderful and blessed week and stay safe. Amen.